Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more about ourselves and the world we inhabit. A time to explore the possible human and the beliefs we live by. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Our chat room is open, and I invite you to join our chat room hosts, Ravinder and Andrea, and join in the fun. The chat room does add a special dimension to our show. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Some great insight is advanced there, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we have a great chat room, and the guest is often on the air as well and today's guest is on the air, I mean in the chat room live in the chat room and our guest today is in the chat room too so whenever that happens we get some really cool tips coming up in there so it's definitely worth checking out plus the fact you get to say hi to me and Andrew and (laughs) the rest of the wonderful gang so do come on in, that's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. It is a great gang. In this week's spotlight we turn our attention to our believing machine. The mind is a believing machine, and many have argued that it needs to be in order for our survival. The mind must believe in order to prepare for the moment and plan for tomorrow. The mind makes up stories about everything and everyone. So not only is the mind a believing machine, it's a story machine as well. It is constantly interpreting and reinterpreting stories about everyone, including ourselves. The mind makes mistakes, however, it never informs us of those errors. It makes mistakes in our perception, in our cognition, in our recollection, and so forth. It forms beliefs as a result of the information in our environments, and often this information is simply not correct. We may be told that we are stupid or fat or ugly or that our genes destine us toward this or that and so on. And we form causal beliefs based on this disinformation. Our believing machines store all of our emotional memories as well as those so-called facts of life that we are taught. In fact, our brains generate emotions, so it's no wonder that when you challenge someone's beliefs, they may become agitated and emotional. It can be difficult, to say the least, to dislodge self-sabotaging, self-destructive beliefs, or for that matter, any belief whatsoever. Knowing this should warn us to be vigilant and constantly challenge our beliefs. When I attended university, I was taught all sorts of nonsense in the name of truth. For instance... I learned that brain cells begin to die in your early 30s and are never replaced. Indeed, this was the scientific fact for more than 100 years. But it's really false to fact. Today we know better. I was taught very many falsehoods under the guise of the latest scientific knowledge that turns out not to be true at all today. That said, some of what we learned today undoubtedly will turn out to be just as untrue as what we learned yesterday. 
Since our minds need to believe in a future, in a past, in some certainties like gravity, we continue to adapt some of our beliefs throughout our lives. My father laughed at the idea of putting a man on the moon. How ridiculous that idea was. His beliefs had to adopt a new script when Neil Armstrong took one giant step for mankind. Unfortunately, not all of our erroneous beliefs are flushed out this way. No, in order to truly cancel the effects of some life beliefs, we must diligently search them out and vigilantly replace them. For if I believe that the brain cells die and do not replace themselves, what sort of future based on my belief and expectation have I just created? It's certainly not the one I want, and that's an absolute certainty. Just think about some of those beliefs that are not necessarily true, that have been fostered as doctrine, like our genes determine everything, including the diseases we might fall prey to or any of those less recognized false beliefs that give rise to limiting our expressions in life. Again, the brain needs to believe and it will invent beliefs when necessary, but we do have the ability to train that lovely believing machine of ours, and if we will take the time to do so, it's amazing what a believing machine can do for you when it's totally on your side. I flesh this all out in my book, Choices and Illusions, where I state something we should all remember, and that is this. The genie in your life is in your mind. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I think this is actually a really big one. I wasn't really aware you were going to talk about this today. I suppose I should have been. But the whole idea of what you believe you know, creates your future. Obviously, if you believe, you know, old age is you're decrepit and your brain doesn't work and all of that stuff, well, that happens. We see that often. But, you know, there are limitations. Excuse me. There are limitations to how much belief you can exert because you can't suddenly believe, well, I can fly, so therefore I can because it doesn't happen. So I think this the real key here is about taking charge of your beliefs. Actually, you know, creating beliefs that work for you, that assist you. It's not about airy-fairy stuff. It's not about, you know, flying to the moon, you know, without the rocket or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Anyway, I, right I, I just found Except it fascinating. There's a lot of food for thought in yeah. what you just said. Except that's that where my I mind remember went. that you wanted to fly in your, your sleep. And you, you couldn't until you believed that you could. Now, I, you know, I, I agree with you. You're not going to go out there and I fly love my flying okay. dreams. I do have some amazing flying dreams. I love them. But you're right on. You know, if we take charge of what it is that we believe, and then we look at, at, at what those beliefs are, and we see that the belief is not self-serving. It is a belief that leads to degeneration or leads to disease or handicaps us in our life. Uh, a belief that tells us we're not smart enough or we're not attractive enough or, or we're not young enough or we're not old enough or whatever the, the belief might be. If we attach ourselves to that belief, we're going to live out a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's not what any of us really want. 
That's most certainly true. I think controlling your police, I, I just suddenly, you know, sometimes you forget the most obvious. And when, we, when I'm talking on the phone to people about the Inner Talk programs, you know, I have to tell them over and over again, you know, the Inner Talk programs aren't miraculous. You know, you can play the basketball program till you're blue in the face, but unless you have the talent of Michael Jordan, you're not going to become Michael Jordan, what you will become is the best that you can be and that's the most important part when you have beliefs that restrict you, limit you, trap you, if you think you're going to fail you're going to fail and that's what Inner Talk is about, it's about getting out of your own way and becoming the best that you can be in whatever area that may be and it's a very practical type of approach and that's why I like it. Well, that's kind of off the point, but it's very well said. <laughs> okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of both involving you and paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark. Now many of you wanted to know why the name Sixkiller, and the reason we did not ask Dr. Clark that question on the show is she's simply tired of answering it. So, okay, here's the deal. The name is common among Native Americans in Oklahoma, Colorado, and Kansas. Dr. Clark informed me that somewhere way back she may well be related to the legendary lawman Sam Sixkiller. Now, Sam Sixkiller was born in the Going Snake District of the Cherokee Nation sometime in 1842, what is now Adair County, Oklahoma. His surname was given to his ancestor, Probably a great-grandfather. And according to the legend, the reason his great-grandfather received this name is that in one of the fights between his nation, the Cherokees and the Creeks, he killed six men before being killed himself. He was called Six Killer from this point forward, and the name descended from father to son until befalling young Sam Six Killer. So there you have it, and now you know why the name is Six Killer. Okay, Donna Road, I really enjoyed your show with Dr. Clark. I love Native American lore, and I found it very interesting that their stories of UFOs and aliens are so similar to those of people around the world. CB remarked, I find it very interesting to wonder what events occurred that these kinds of myths or stories have hung out in verbal traditions for so long. It had to seem very important that the story has not been dropped over all this time. Now, Mark wrote, I haven't read Dr. Artie Sixkiller Clark's books, but based on the radio show, I would say that she seemed to exhibit an undercurrent of hostility toward those cultures, including our own, which have dominated the scene for thousands of years. I don't blame her for any resentment she may have toward the mistreatment of her people, the Native Americans in general, or the indigenous peoples of Central and South America by the dominant cultures. However, if we are to have a serious discussion about the existence of UFOs and space aliens, we have to consider all the evidence from all cultures and not exclude some evidence, such as the pyramids, because they're, quote, ethnocentric, close quote. Multiculturalism as a discipline maintains the worldview of cultural relativism, which says that those among one culture are incapable of judging the traditions, values, and even logic of another culture. 
including personal accounts of unexplained UFO phenomena. Otherwise, evidence and conclusions become evaluated by culturally subjective and not by the proper scientific standards and methods. Because we are human, we may not be able to acquire an absolute objectivity, that is, a God's eye view of the universe. However, I debunk phenomenology in all of its forms. I believe that the universe is knowable, and with the proper standards and methods of thinking, we can come to know much of it. Loretta wrote, I have heard of Indian marker trees. I wonder if it was also for sky purposes. This interview has me thinking I have lots to learn. Paul wrote, The great variety of guests that you host on your show makes it the most interesting and unusual show going. Thanks and keep it coming. Jay wrote, I love your work and you are an amazing person. You've been talking to my wife too much, Jay. She'd buy us. I tell everybody that you are an amazing person. <laughs> Rebecca wrote, I really enjoy and are challenged by your post. Mind programming is an amazing book. Keep your curiosity. God is not offended by your questions. I can tell she read the book. <laughs> Georgina wrote, I just love your Intertalk CDs. And Roland wrote, lovely newsletter. I look forward to receiving each new one. Thank you for your inspiration. Now, his letter is actually about a newsletter you did. Oh, how and cool. it was a lovely <laughs> newsletter. Now, if you're not receiving our free e-newsletter, uh, be sure to get yours. You can do so by going to eldentaylor.com. There's a little button there, and, you know, uh, there's no cost to it. It's free. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show. Dreaming with the Polar Bears, Spirit Journeys with Animal Guides with Don Bauman Brunke. Now we have hosted a number of guests on this show who have spoken to us about animals in the afterlife. And we have also been privileged to hear the tales of animal communicators who have connected with both our living and deceased animal friends. Indeed, one story that I really, you know, it just really made an impression upon me was that of an older woman who lost her dog after some 15 years. Now, everyone who has ever lost their faithful friend knows that the grieving process is great, perhaps even as great as that of some of our human loved ones. So this elderly lady, as the story goes, sought comfort from her animal communicator. She listened to the animal communicator tell her how happy her dog was in the afterlife and other comforting information of this kind until she interrupted and said something like, How do I know this is anything but fanciful thinking designed to make me feel better? After a pause... The animal communicator told her that her dog had been jealous of a stuffed animal that used to sit beside her in the rocking chair while she knitted and watched TV. So one day her dog grabbed the stuffed animal and ran out to the yard where it was buried under a thorny climbing rosebush. Well, the two of them rose and went to the yard with a shovel where they dug up the stuffed animal under that very rosebush, just as the deceased dog had said. Now this sort of remarkable tale 
definitely gets my attention. Today, our guest will share with us her own incredible journey entering the dreamscapes of the polar bear and how she learned that they are the sacred guardians of North Pole evolutionary energy. She will also inform us as to how we can all learn to participate in similar experiences linking up with the animal world. Don Brunke is the author of six books about connecting at deeper levels with animals, nature, self, and spirit. She is also an animal communicator and a dream enthusiast. Her latest book, Dreaming with Polar Bears, explores conscious interaction with the dream world via her experiences in co-dreaming with polar bears. Don is a writer and editor who specializes in the areas of healing, dreaming, animal teachings, and deepening our connection with all life. She's been with us before, so on that, let's get her in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Don Bauman Brunke. Well, hello, Eldon. Thanks for having me again. Ah, it's a pleasure. I look forward to our conversations. You, uh, <laughs> you're one of those special people out there that does things I can only wish I could do. <laughs> one of the most popular posts one can make on YouTube or Facebook nowadays is something about animals, especially their loving, faithful, and cute side. What is what is this thing with animals, Don? I mean, why do we find them both so mysterious and so wonderful? Well, I think it actually has to do, the deeper answer to that question, I think has to do with our evolution as a planet. And I think we are opening up to the voices of other species and not focusing so much on our own right now. So I think through animals, we're learning more about ourselves and about our connection with the planet um, and, and where we're going, basically our, our evolution as a, as, a, as a globe, as a world. Um, Animals, I think, are also, most animals, no, not all, but most animals, the cuddly ones you see on YouTube and things, are non-threatening. So I know in my own experiences with animal communication, I was introduced very gently through my dogs, through birds, through cats and horses, um, to kind of opening in this way and establishing um, a deeper connection, not only through communication, but through relationship, through heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind relationship with animals. And um, and I think that's a stepping stone for many people to kind of open up to our relationship with the planet at deeper levels and with each other, too. Let me ask you the tough one, okay? Sure. Uh, you know, for a long time I had a horse ranch, and uh, you, horses to me are, are very dear. And, mm-hmm. uh, you yeah, know, one day I learned that, you know, there are countries that uh, are actually, they were in the market buying horses at an auction, uh, for feet, uh, mm-hmm. it was. Uh, it's you know, uh, horses are a delicacy in France. All right, I was really offended about that. The idea of you know eating a horse to me was like eating a dog or eating a cat. But then you know, later in my life, um, I I raised a, a young steer. Uh, it scoured, I bottle fed it, etc. And I discovered that the steer was just as smart as these horses, sometimes even smarter, would come when you called it by its name, and so on and so forth. How, why is it we can be so dissonant about animals? We can love a species so much and totally disregard another species, or for that matter, love our own personal animals so much and turn and totally disregard the others. Well, 
Well, that's a big question, and I think the answer is multi-layered. Um, first, let's just speak culturally. Different cultures view food in different ways. You know, um, insects are considered good protein in some places, whereas here that idea is still a little queasy to some people. Um, so, so there's a whole cultural paradigm that we have to that we have to look at in terms of what is food and what isn't food. And you can actually follow that back. Um, kind of anthropologically as to how we evolved with 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 certain foods being food and cer- uh, certain animals being food and certain animals being um, you know uh, domesticated and kind of friends almost or allies and others becoming personal um, personal friends so um, you know dogs and cats and that sort of thing I think it it, it really depends on our relationship with um, not only ourselves, but with animals and the world. This is kind of my, my standard answer, is that it's all dependent on your relationship and how you resonate with with different animals. So for some people, you know, eating, um, eating here we eat moose. You know, eating moose is not a thing, and you can still revere the moose and honor the moose, but you partake of the moose at a deeper level when you take that in. Um, think about animals. Animals eat animals. And there's a whole big, long story about the predator-prey relationship and how we actually can take in the essence of that animal. And in my book, I talk about the polar bears often talk about eating seals and how they take in the wisdom of the seals. And, um, and, and so they participate kind of in the seal being. And there's a very special relationship there between polar bears and seals, whales as well. So um, actually, we could we could spend a whole a whole show on this on this very question. You know, it's it's, it's a deep, multi-layered question, and I think um, go, go ahead go ahead with your question. No, I was just going to say, you know, picking up from something you said, I remember years ago uh, participating in a uh, research project sponsored by the Casey Foundation. And it was all about reducing anger. Could you reduce anger by removing red meat from your diet? Because the theory was the way cattle are slaughtered today is it's is cruel and it's inhumane and they're full of a lot of fear and uh and that stress and that fear is transferred uh in the meat that we eat. Uh, this particular experiment tended to demonstrate that by being away, by by not having red meat for a period of time, it was 30 days, that you know anger levels did indeed lower. But my question is, do you think when you say you bring the wisdom of of the animal uh, when it's imbibed properly, do you think it's also possible that we bring the fear we bring we bring the horror that we impose upon these animals into our own bodies when we imbibe an animal that's been treated that way um this is reminding me of what you talked about before you introduced me about belief systems and i think if you go in with that idea that eating red meat is going to cause anger and it's going to cause um you to take in these negative emotions then I think you're going to feel heavier with red meat. Um, I think if you go into it, for example, my husband is a hunter. So he hunts um, moose and caribou, and that's a part of our diet during the winter. And I know how he takes that in. I know how he relates with the moose and the caribou um, and, and, and the way that he handles the meat. 
and the way that he relates to that whole system. And I participate also in, in cutting up the meat and preparing the meat. But, and it's but done Don, in a different way. Yeah, I mean, that so, is different than the slaughter yard. That is different that is than different. shoving I agree the cattle down a shade. I agree with and you. They're all overcrowded and, you know, I, anyway, yeah. I agree with you. And, and that's part of my answer, which is it depends on the relationship, doesn't it? It depends upon the way that we relate to our food. And, you know, we're very removed in, in the West here from how we buy meat. It's, it's packaged up in little uh, plastic-covered containers. Yeah. And we don't really connect with what that animal was and where that animal lived and things like that. So there's a disconnect there. And that's what I'm speaking to. So it's not only yeah. your belief system, but it's how deep that disconnect is within you. And, and again, I go back All to right. relationships. We've got a break, always. a hard break. Hold that sure. thought. We'll come sure, back sure. to it. We're speaking with Dawn Bauman-Brunke about her life, work, and book, Dreaming with Polar Bears, Spirit Journeys with Animal Guides. You're going to want to get the book. It's a great read. To learn more about Dawn, visit, your web, visit her website at animalvoices.net. Now, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. The praise for Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. Lindsay Wagner had this to say. Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Now I've been happy lately Thinking about the good things to come I believe it could be something good has begun. Oh, I've been smiling lately, dreaming about the world at one. And I believe it could be someday it's going to come. But now on the edge of darkness, there I am.
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dawn Bauman Brunke about her life, work, and book, Dreaming with Polar Bears, Spirit Journeys with Animal Guides. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some truly special significance to them. Music does impact us in many ways. It affects our attention, memory, performance. Our choice in music has even been linked to personality traits. So, when a person chooses a favorite music, there's a little bit of self-disclosure here. <laughs> All right, Don. You chose Cat Stevens performing Peace Train for your first one. Tell us, how does that, how does that inform us about who you are? I think I'm all about that, about the peace trade, about, I love when he says, "Good, bring your good friends too, you know, and I think that's kind of a central theme that runs through my books is everyone's invited to the party. It's about being who we are, connecting with a more authentic version of who we are, really, and celebrating that, celebrating our differences. You know, this is an amazing planet of diversity. And so uh, for me, part of my joy in writing it's about writing about diversity of species and how we can connect with other species as well as the interior parts of ourselves to kind of uh, really celebrate who we all are and uh, have fun. <laughs> great song, great choice. Yeah, Listen, thanks. Don, before we go any further, you know, we like to generally establish three things in our interviews. Who's the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end... You know, I, you and I have chatted before, but I kind of took it for advantage. I took advantage of that by not, you know, really filling our audience in. So I'm going to ask you: tell us what it was like when you were growing up, how and uh, when you became interested in animals, what your first experience as an animal communicator was like, how the people around you responded to you when you started telling them that you're talking to the animals, and so forth. Wow, that's a lot of questions. So uh, I'll give you the short story, which right. is um, I grew up in Wisconsin, and um, we always had kind of, you know, dogs and cats, that type of thing, but I didn't have a huge um, deep uh, bond with animals. I, I, would, I had a connection, a relationship with certain animals. Um, it wasn't – I went to school in Appleton, Wisconsin, Lawrence University, and studied symbolic anthropology and comparative religions. And I think that was a really good foundation for me because I, w I became very interested in how different cultures looked at the divine and how they expressed that and how they used different worldviews and paradigms to talk about that and kind of um, interiorize that. Um, my, my exposure to animals, to animal communication, didn't happen until I came to Alaska. I, was, uh, I actually became the editor of a health and wellness magazine and one of the articles that I was editing had to do with a communicator in Anchorage, you know, this woman who talked to animals. And I thought, whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> mm -hmm. I wasn't really sure about it, but the article was very well grounded, and it definitely inspired me. 
And I interviewed her, and I began interviewing a lot of different uh, communicators around the country, about 24, and that became kind of the basis for my first book, Animal Voices. But the key experience that I had, I would always ask the communicators, how did this happen for you? Because I was fascinated. How does it work that we can, you know, connect with animals and, and hear some kind of interior conversation? Um, the actual experience for me came when I was writing at my computer, and I was in a very good flow, kind of in the flow of writing, and um, I had some birds came to the bush outside of my office window. And I, I, was out, I, I definitely was in a little altered state of consciousness, just in the sense of being very intuitive, very in tune. I remember putting my hand on my heart and walking to the window and greeting the birds. And plain as day, I heard the, the birds within my head. Now, it wasn't a, an actual voice. It was a feeling. And it was an interior translation. In other words, I knew what the birds were saying and what they were feeling. It was a, it was a different kind of connection than what I was used to. And that's, for me, what started um, a, a more personal exploration of what animal communication was, what it is, and how we connect. I began connecting with my dogs, with really anyone who would talk to me. I just, I just became a student of it and spent several years just having experiences connecting with animals, um, learning. I've always kind of been good at uh, um, self-study. So it was my own little curriculum in learning how to connect with animals and learning how to translate and then learning how to um, uh, express that, uh, animals' feelings, perceptions, thoughts to others, to other humans. And that really became the basis of much of my work then for the last um, 10 to 15 years. The, this first bird, uh, mm-hmm. kind of a mind melt. What, did the bird come to give you a message, or was it synchronistic? Or, or it was a group of birds. Yeah, I, I would say synchronistic is a is a good uh, uh, a word for it because I definitely was in this very calm state of consciousness, um, very open. And I think I had been thinking about this for so long, and my mind, my logical mind was so busy trying to figure it out, you know, different ways to think about it. And finally, maybe I just let go. And by letting go, the door was opened, you know. And I I think for me, that's a pattern I have a lot in my life. I, 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 you know, even though I'm open to these very kind of out out there things, there's a part of me that's a, a big skeptic. You know, and I kind of, (laughs) I need the proof. So, um, you know, and that's an entirely different thing. But um, I think what happened was I went through my logical, uh, rational process and then then eased open and and let go. And let go and let God, huh? And, and, And that relationship opened to me. And that's really, I think, for me and for most others, what, what animal communication is about. It's not about a, a protocol you follow necessarily. It's about an opening, and it's about relationship. You know, I've heard repeatedly uh, from individuals who have experienced something like what you're talking about, not necessarily with animals, but it might be emerging with, with a tree or it might be, you know, some right. other level of, uh, of right. experience that we don't have the ability to really articulate you know it, it, it there's no linguistic capability uh, I've heard from them that it is the suspension of thought it is when we quit trying to think about it because thinking is in words when okay. we quit trying to think how it might be and and we've just kind of let it go that that's when we have that experience if our te- if our intent is ready or prepared for us to do so. Right. Would you say that that's accurate? Is that what yeah, you experience? I, I would say it. I would say it this way, and I, I totally agree that connecting with a tree or a mountain or the land 
is, is it's, it's the same process as connecting with a bird or a horse or a, a dolphin. And I, when I teach animal communication classes, I often talk about kind of three stages we go through. So we go through our preparation of wanting to talk to this animal and, you know, kind of having an intention about it. And then, uh, so you might form those ideas in your mind of, you know, what you want to say, and, and, and that's very communication-oriented. I think uh, what you're pointing to and what actually happens when we do that, that opening, that opening of the door, is we move from communication to communion. So it's this very um, deepened relationship, this sense of a universal shared language that's not necessarily in words, it's in feelings, it's in a sense of connection, it's in resonance. And then the third step kind of coming out of that in order to communicate, we go back into communication. So I think the thought process is very important there, and we need to use both clarity and, commun- and creativity um, when, as a translator. I, I, I think of myself often when I'm doing talks as a translator. I'm going in, I'm feeling those thoughts, perceptions of the animal, and then I'm coming out, I'm stepping back into the world of communication and trying to convey that um, you know, in the best way possible that I can do. When, when you're in this communal state, Don, mm-hmm. is it... Um, is there are there images? It is, uh, or, or is it more or less just a blank state of exchange? That's a really good question. I think it depends on the animal, and it depends on what we're doing. Um, for me, a lot of times images do come up. Um, I, if, if I had to dissect the process, I'd say that's almost near the end where I'm phasing more into that communication phase. Um, you know, I, 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 for me, it's more feeling based. It's just more. Um, I would use the words resonance, um, emanation, feeling, that, that communal type of thing. So um, uh, there's not a lot of thought there. It's more just um, using your entire body as kind of a receptor, and you're, you're just soaking it in and you're feeling it. And you're emanating as well, because there's definitely a back-and-forth type of um, uh, communion that goes on. So I don't want it to sound too Mr. Spock mind-meldy, you know, but <laughs> there's that aspect of it as well. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, I think you're doing a very good job. Listen, you heard the setup piece. Um, have you personally had animals provide the kind of verifiable information that the dog did with a buried stuffed animal that I yeah. you know, on that story yeah. I told? Uh, and if you have, yeah. can you share a you know a story or yeah. two about that with us, please? Sure. One of my favorites um, that I often talk about in classes is um, I uh, and this kind of resonates with you too. It was about horses. And usually I do, I don't do a lot of horses for some reason. The more dogs, cats, people call about. But a particular lady out here in Alaska wanted me to talk to her horses. And she had a farm and we went around um, and talked to the different horses. It was really a wonderful time because usually I'm doing this on the phone. Um, so we were out in the fields and talking to the different horses. And we spent quite a while there, about an hour and a half. And at the very end, she almost as an afterthought. She brought me to a, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so not a horsey, um, a little barn, I guess, a shed, where there was a horse, oh, okay. an older uh-huh. horse, <laughs> a white horse, and she asked me, you know, if he had anything to say. His name was Charlie, and I remember putting my hand um, on his on his nose, on his, uh, his head, and what came through was this incredibly vibrant, glossy black horse running through the stable, just running past me, almost like a spirit horse. And the message that I got was, Midnight says hello. And I thought, oh, that's kind of strange. This is a white horse. What does that have to do with? 
so I said to the woman, at that point, you know, I had been with her a while, and I trusted myself enough, and I just told her the experience. And her eyes started um, literally popping out tears, and her hand went to her heart, and she said, you don't know this, but my hard horse was Midnight, and that's why I started this farm. That's why all these horses are here. And Midnight used to live here with Charlie. They were best of friends, and Midnight loved to run. So in that moment, I, you know, I was confirming to her something that she felt, that she also had felt that Midnight was around her and was guiding her. And it was also a huge confirmation to me that these little things that you, that you see, that you feel or perceive, can be so important in proving to other people that this experience is indeed real. And it's something I want to just add, it's something we all have access to. I don't think I'm necessarily special in this ability. I think I've just developed this ability. But I really truly believe that we all have um, the capability of tapping into this. Well, and you teach classes in that. And, and in your new book, you, you give us some instruction about it, too. But before we get to that, you know, I've discussed on many occasions the nature of the soul um, on this show. And everyone agrees that animals have a spirit but not everyone agrees that they have a soul, you know, the permanent stuff that is the eternal gift of the Creator. What say you, Don? Do animals have the same sort of soul that humans have? And if not, how does it differ? Boy, that's a, you know, um, <laughs> I remember having this discussion with my mother when I was about eight years old. And um, she was a Lutheran. We were brought up, uh, brought up Lutheran. And... I could not believe that the Lutherans didn't believe that animals had souls. That was just my turning point, I think, against... <laughs> I don't want to offend any Lutherans about organized religion in general. I just couldn't believe it at seven years of age. Um, to me, it just seemed uh, uh, utterly apparent that all animals, that all beings had a soul. Now, do we distinguish between soul and spirit? I don't know. You know, to me, everything has a divine essence. That's how I'm comfortable with saying it. We all have a divine essence. We're all connected in that way. Um, we all share a common oneness. That's how okay, I think then, about it. Then, then let me ask you this. I mean, I, I, most Christians do not see animals as having souls per se. Although there are several biblical verses that indicate that they, you know, they should see it in that way. But mm -hmm. you know, that be that as it may. There are lots of ideas in spiritual circles about transmigration. Some mm -hmm. believe that animals may become humans once they have mastered a certain level. Others believe that humans, you know, can come back as a as a familiar. Uh, mm -hmm. A friend comes back as as a pet, your dog, your cat, etc. What have you learned about this? Um, okay, so to begin with, my paradigm is that there's not necessarily a higher or lower. It's that uh, the, uh, every animal, every being, every mountain, grass, etc., is an expression of spirit. One of the most interesting conversations I had with several animals is about the idea that we live simultaneously as different expressions. So in other words, I could be a polar bear as well as a human as well as a fox. And so we're living these different incarnations simultaneously. That's a fascinating concept, isn't it? It is, but I'm going to ask you to flesh yeah. that out. So what you're really talking about is, uh, all right, I, you know, a, a multi-dimensional you know, kind of universe. Are you yeah. saying that? Uh -huh. in, 
multidimensional. So well, I could be here as a human, and in another dimension I'm a horse, and in another dimension I'm, you know, uh, a snail. Or I mean, is that what you're saying? Or are you, or are you implying that something along the lines of what you wrote in your book, Shape Shifting, that I can take on characteristics of that animal? And have those simultaneously, or or, or both, you know, concurrently yes. possible. I think it's answer D, all of the above, for sure. I think it depends how big are you willing to let your consciousness get. Um, you know, time is a paradigm as well, so it's a it's a, it's a way that we make sense of things. So if you want, if you want to look at one thing moves to the order uh, to an, another in an orderly fashion, life after life after life, that's one way of seeing it. It's a you know it's a valid one for a lot of people. Um, if we want to look at it in terms of a a multi multiple universe, multi layered universe, maybe we're living in different alternate realities and we have different lives with different uh, as different beings. And here's another thing: maybe we interconnect. Maybe we're able to tap into those other selves, if you will, and to begin a larger process of coming together and sharing insights, knowledge, information, and and work in larger ways. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities here. For me, that one resonates. I've had that experience, so um, that's kind of where I'm, where my interest is right now. All right, let's turn to your book, and okay. you know, connecting with our animal friends and dreams. And many people. Yeah who've lost a pet, insist that their animal friends have visited them in their dreams after they've crossed over. Mm-hmm. How common is this sort of thing, Don? Uh, well, I don't know. I haven't made a study of that, of how common it is. I know that it's possible. I've had experiences connecting with my animals who have passed over. I know there's been books written about that. Um, that's not really my area of expertise, but I certainly think that is um, something that many people have experienced and animals have told me about that, too. So, you know, um, my, my, my focus in, in this particular book is more about co-dreaming and about being lucid in one's dreams and sharing right. awareness in dreams. So, right. um, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a different focus than necessarily, uh, uh, past, you know, animals that have passed over. Okay, so yeah. let's turn to that, then. Sure. That's the flip side, to me, of the same coin and the same issue. You decide that you're going to connect with an animal in your dreams. Do you do this in, in advance, consciously say, okay, I'm going to connect with the polar bears and learn what I can learn for the polar bears and <laughs> connect with the dolphins? I mean, how does that work? Well, for me, I, I do think that is possible. I think if you want to incubate a dream, and that's another discussion, that, that that's definitely possible if you want to work with a particular species. For me, it, uh, this whole book uh, happened um, not that way at all. It happened very organically, and I was very surprised that it was polar bears. It actually began with a, a, a dream and shared awareness with a little dog. And in the dream, I was able to shift. I was lucid in the dream. I was actually on a cruise ship at the time, and I was aware of my body sleeping on this cruise ship, but I was also aware of this dream dog. And I was able to shift my awareness into the consciousness of the dog and learn all about his life. And I had this the feeling in the dream that um, this dog was a real dog somewhere on the physical earth and was having this experience and was sharing this dream with me. That dream was significant. It kind of uh, was one of those things that just was an interesting thing I talked about, you know, to people. But it took a whole other year before I had a second dream. 
in which I met a dream professor on an airplane, <laughs> flying from Juneau to Anchorage in the dream. Um, and, and he kind of brought up, I, 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 in that dream, I remembered the lucid dream before. And I had this kind of mirroring experience in the dream of being aware I happened to, uh, I had been talking with the dream professor, and I happened to look out the window. It was very early morning. And I had this weird feeling of, isn't it strange that I can be on this airplane um, and all these people can be sleeping here, but I can shift my awareness and I can look out the window and see these clouds. And if I wanted to, I could become a cloud or I could have this different experience here. So it was that same sense of shifting awareness, just as I was able to see my body in the cruise ship and connect with the dog. In this dream, I, I was aware of two different uh, screens of consciousness. And um, anyway, it's kind of a long dream, but in the end, the dream professor gave me a little invitation. And the invitation I understood in the dream was because I was able to remember this dream and I was able to bring it to lucid awareness within the dream. And the invitation was something that he handed to me at the end of the dream, and then he whispered in my ear what it said on the card, which was dreaming with polar bears. And when I woke up, I was really... um, um, I felt a deep, uh, well, it felt like a very deep, serious invitation. Not serious. I don't mean to sound that it was heavy, but it was a, um, I felt honored by this invitation to dream with polar bears. What did that mean? It's not dreaming about polar bears. It's dreaming with polar bears. And, um, and it was very much up to me to decide whether I wanted to do that or not. So that's for me how it began because I did decide, yes, I want to do that. What does that mean? I didn't prepare to think about dreaming with polar bears. It just naturally happened once I resonated, once I answered that question, yes, I want to dream this, with polar bears. This dream professor that came to you had never come mm-hmm. to you before? This was a human uh, being? Uh, well, it was, you know, a dream being. Um, he certainly had characteristics of, I oftentimes have these older kind of European men that, that come in as mentors or as, as dream guides. So, um I, he, him specifically hadn't come before, no, but I think that pattern had been um, something I was familiar with in my dreams before, yeah. And and the dog, did you ever, I mean, uh, identify this dog, why this dog was uh, had come to you to set up the second dream? No, I think the dog was a, it was, I, I do believe it was a real dog, and I believe, uh, because I have a big deep connection with dogs, and for me, dogs and bears are, are, are related in a way. There's a, a connection there, um, just a personal connection, and um, I think the dog was a forerunner, if you will, of the polar bear connection, and kind of a test, perhaps. You know, I think dreams oftentimes offer us tests of where we are in our consciousness, and where do we want to go. Um, so they're challenges, let's say, and, um, and we can either accept them or not, and if we do, then um, we may have other tests and challenges down the way as we as we wake up within our dreams. All right. Well, we're going to flesh this out more when we come back from a break, but we've got another break to deal with. If you'd like to know more about Don Brunke and her book, Dreaming with Polar Bears, Spirit Journeys with Animal Guides, or her other books for that matter, visit her website, animalvoices.net. Now, we have a video for you during the break of Animal Life After Death. Be careful, though. This one may bring tears to your eyes, especially if you've ever lost a dear pet friend. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor.
What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With Intertalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. Intertalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.intertalk.com to find your talent today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Dawn Bauman Brunke about her life, work, and book, Dreaming with Polar Bears, Spirit Journeys with Animal Guides. 
Now, Don, we just played your second musical choice. That was to be one of my very favorites, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Please tell us, why is this one special to you? I just love how Iz does this song. He reminds me of a big whale. <laughs> and it just has this inclusive quality to it. I, I don't know. I just I can't even tell you why I love it. I just do. It's wonderful. Hmm. I don't know that I should let you off the hook with just that little bit of an answer, but really, well, right. what else do you want to know? <laughs> there, there, there's so much that we have to talk about. Otherwise, we'll just let it go. Uh, you, uh, you, I guess. Let me back up a, a bit. Before the break, you were explaining uh, the connected nature between dreams that were a year apart, the dog, right. and then the. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dream professor. Do you keep a dream journal? Oh, I do. I've kept a dream journal since fifth grade, so I have quite, I have a whole shelf of dream journals. Yeah, I've always been interested in dreams. I've been fascinated by them, and, um, you know, I've done a lot of experiences with dreams, a lot of play with dreams, and yeah, for me, a dream journal is is very, very useful, very helpful. Mm-hmm. So, in your view, is is that an important part of learning to do what you're doing with uh, with the polar bears in in your book, this lucid dreaming, maintaining a dream journal? Will that help in this process? Well, you know, I'm a writer, so for me, writing is it's yeah, it's important. <laughs> it helps me ground. But I do think there's another um, aspect to keeping a dream journal, which is very helpful. Um, is that we're bringing the dreams um, back in a physical way, and we're grounding them. By the very act of writing, we're kind of grounding them into our, our waking reality. Um, so if you, know, if you happen to be a, a, a singer or a, a, a speaker and you like speaking your dreams more, I think that's fine. For me, having a record of dreams is really um, important. And there's one section of my book where I talk about remembering some dreams. And when I went back and looked through my dream journals, I actually found five different instances of a dream theme that continues. So I think if you are serious about dream work, having a dream journal is invaluable because you can go back and you can look at it, you can see how different themes develop, how different um, repetition happens, and how dream motifs um, evolve within your dreams. So, yes, for me, I would say very important to have a dream journal. I highly recommend it. <laughs> okay, so let's break down the dreaming process then. Now, sure. Stephen LeBerg made lucid dreaming really popular many years ago. You're doing lucid dreaming in your book, Will the Polar Bears. Unpack that for our audience. What do you mean by lucid dreaming? Okay. Well, first, lucid dreaming is, uh, the short answer is just, it's that experience you have while dreaming that you are dreaming. So you're uh, awake, in a sense, in your dreams, and you're aware that you are dreaming. You're aware of yourself as a dreaming being. Um, I should say that not all of the experiences in my book were lucid dreams. Some of them were um, uh, uh, dreams um, in which I was sharing awareness. So there's actually two things going on in the book. Number one is in the book. Number one is lucid dreaming of being aware that I am dreaming, and number two is what I call co-dreaming or sharing awareness with another dreamer. Um, and there are examples of this in other literature. Robert Moss talks about um, shared dreaming, and as do other writers. Um, so it's something where you, I don't know that you necessarily have to be lucid in the dream. You're just aware that you're dreaming with another dreamer, and you're sharing it. Sometimes you're not aware that you're sharing it until afterwards. In my case with the polar bears, I was very much aware of, of um, 
of the polar bear in a dream and of sharing consciousness and, and kind of working together. I would say I like to call it shared dreaming because we were, we were really very much working together um, to understand each other and to kind of move forward in the dream together. Okay, so now you can have both types of dreams simultaneously, can you not? Sure, you can sure. co-share yeah. a dream that is also a lucid dream, and that way you become aware that it's a co-shared dream. Did I understand that correctly? Yes. Yeah, there's no rules. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the the very first question that comes into somebody's mind is, why do animals want to share dreams with us? Well, that's a great question. You know, I've had a before the polar bears. I had a lot of dreams with animals um, uh, sharing the dreams, and sometimes I think. Um, it's best answered by the sense of an animal guide, an animal uh, teacher is coming to you and, and helping you with information. Just like we might think of dream guides, we could think of a, a dream guide as an animal and as an animal teacher or mentor coming to help you um, or give you an answer to something. Um, for me, maybe it's best I just, I just explain this little dream that I had after I accepted that invitation from the dream professor to dream Please. with polar bears. Yeah, it was a very short dream, and it happened, uh, it was a repeated dream over a period of about a year. And in the dream, I was simply walking uh, uh, beside a polar bear in the Arctic. That's really all the dream was. It was. Sometimes it was very short, but I was walking. And it was a very specific type of walking. I might call it thoughtful walking or meditative walking. We were walking in a very specific way across the Arctic. Sometimes it was flat snow. Sometimes it was ice. Sometimes it was kind of jaggedy. The, the sea and the sky changed in the dreams. But these dreams were repeated over and over and over for about a year. And um, there was a... You know, I have worked with dreams for a long time, so I'm always interested in engaging the characters of my dreams and learning more about it. These dreams were unique in that I had the sneaking suspicion after a while, after trying to connect with that bear and what it meant and and this and that, my logical mind going through its durable wheel of things, um, was that these dreams were were incubation dreams. They were like seed dreams, and that's what I call them in the book. They were like seed dreams that were planted. And really what I was supposed to do was just walk with that polar bear. And I later found out that it was a deepening process. And in the, in the last dream that I had, I'm walking with the polar bear through, uh, uh, through this, uh, you know, the Arctic uh, landscape, and I'm placing my feet very carefully, and suddenly I become aware that I've had this dream before and that I'm dreaming now. And with that realization, I turned to the polar bear, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and he turned his head and looked at me, and I saw myself through his eyes. And I realized this bear was dreaming me, just like I was dreaming him. That was kind of the seed of awakening for me, of what it means to dream with another being, um, you know, in, in a lucid dream landscape. And that's kind of the how everything evolved for me um, in terms of this book and in terms of what it means to dream with another another being, in this case, a polar bear. You do a really good job explaining that intellectually. I'm going to back you up a little bit. Dreams are often very full of feeling. What what do these dreams feel like? I mean, you know, were you cold when you were walking with a polar bear? <laughs> were you comfortable? I mean, yeah, what, yeah. What, what, Go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, that is an interesting question because there's lots of notes in my in my dream journal about that, about, you know, how I feel. And in, up until the very final one, it was, um, it the focus was really on movement, on walking. 
And sometimes I was aware of light hitting the snow in a particular way and kind of being a little bit, you know, um, uh, focused on that. But it was always this sense of walking in unison, walking side by side with the polar bear. And this, uh, and in the final dream, it was no, it was very much of being in a dream. I wasn't cold. It wasn't. Um, I wasn't concerned with what I was wearing. That type of thing. It was more. Wow, I'm dreaming. I'm 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 awake in this dream, and and it just evolved into something else. Um, it was a launch pad into something else. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm going to ask you to back up just a little bit. Sure. You, you've triggered something in my mind that I, I'm very curious about. Um, two parts. Uh, does your husband ever hunt bear? He does. He does. Not polar okay. bear, now, of course. Polar second, bear. second, yeah, polar bear are protected, are they not? Yes, correct. Okay, so it wouldn't be a polar bear that he hunted, but but, but bear. Yeah. So now let me back up, and, I, and and here's my real question. I, and I'm going to frame it from my perspective, which is what mm-hmm. triggered it anyway. Question, do you think guilt drives some of our animal dreams? I mean... I once shared a special friendship with a horse that I called Cowboy. The time came that I couldn't keep him any longer, Don, and so, you know, I sold him to a friend who I thought would just spoil him. He was a trained halter and a vent horse, and he'd become a reserve champion. So when these people bought Cowboy, the first thing they did was throw him in the arena. The very first day, he won everything for him. So they hauled him home a long distance, and then turned him loose to drink. He got colic, distended, and died a horrible, painful death that evening from drinking too much water. Now, every horse person knows better than to work their horse hard with whole water and then let him drink it all. You know, So I can't tell you how much guilt I still feel over this or the uncountable times I've said I'm sorry to him, but I still have these horrible dreams. Mm-hmm. So my question, could guilt be a driving factor that connects us with animals? Well, I think it could be, certainly. I mean, you're, you know, that's, that's an intense emotional connection and, and event that happens. So, yeah, well, well, I, of course it could. Um, does it always? Not necessarily, I don't think. Um, to me, in my dreams, that guilt wasn't a, wasn't a factor. Um, but, um, you know, we can dissect things all, in all different kinds of ways. To me, it sounds like for you that was um, very significant, and so it may have a hand in, in your dream connection with horses, huh? Uh, it was a horrible experience. I mean, yeah. it's one of those things yeah. that I just, you know. Um, but well, you know, my question I... obviously was: it was it possible that uh, your polar bear dreams were in some way connected with your husband's hunting? And, oh. and you know, because no. I know that yeah. you know you opened by telling us a story about a horse, and mm-hmm. and. You know, I have the same, I'm driven very often the same way. I'm, you know, going to buy some ground in Montana and I'm going to just rehab horses. People are discarding and, mm-hmm. you know, because, well, you understand what I'm saying. I do. And I, I have two points to say. Number one is, um, no, I, I don't think that there was any guilt that I felt. You know, my husband's life is his life and he has his own relationship to hunting and I understand that. Um, mine is different. Um, so, no, the polar bears were very unexpected, and I don't think it had to do with guilt. Um, although, there is a section in my book that talks about my past uh, uh, dreams with bears and how 
in the very beginning, this was a series of dreams I alluded to before, that there were about five or six of them that were connected. And in the very beginning, I, uh, then these were all grizzly bears. Um, I was in a forest, and I saw this grizzly bear. I was with my daughter, and I was very scared, and I called and helped, um, uh, called for someone to shoot the bear. In the later dreams, what happened was I saw the bear in the forest, and I saw it in a very different way. And I realized in the dream that I had called somebody to shoot the bear, and I felt so devastated, just devastated that they were going to hurt this bear and that there was nothing I can do. So that little theme of guilt did evolve in my dreams, and that was over a period of like five to six years. Um, I think that had personally, my, my take on that was that was personal um, a, a way of, of distancing myself from my fear, call somebody else to take care of the problem, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, so, and so I evolved it in my own way and, and became more of a champion of bears within the dreams. Now, back to you, you know, one of the interesting things that I think we can do with dreams, and that's what part three of my book is about, is, you know, okay, we have these unique experiences, what can we do? We can go back into our dreams. We can reconnect with animals who have passed away, and we can find ways to heal not only that animal but ourselves. And I think it requires walking a little bit into our own shadow material, be it guilt, be it sorrow, be it anger, whatever it is, moving through that and using the dream world as a uh, kind of a conduit to bring a deeper, wider understanding of, of why those events happened and, and how we can shift ourselves rather than staying hooked in that, you know, guilt, anger, fear, those heavier emotions. Okay, maybe one of these days I'll have you help me do that. (laughs) Let me ask you this. Um, You know, we talk a lot about human beings having a life path. Now, you've walked with the polar bears, and we're going to get, you know, in this next 40 minutes or so that we still have remaining, we're going to get into a lot of detail about that. But do animals have a life path like human beings believe they do? Oh, I definitely think so. I definitely think so, yeah. Uh, you know, I do a lot of animal talks for people over the phone, and many times animals will, will allude to something like, that's why I was here. I was here to help in this way. You know, so I think, yeah, animals are aware of that. Now, I just want to make a quick comment here for people who are listening who aren't com- uh, uh, familiar with animal communication. You know, a lot of times when I'm talking with animals, I'm talking kind of into their more deep, wise self. You know, we all have different levels of our personality. Right now, we're talking in a specific way, kind of about deep things, you know. But if I go out to a party, I'm, I'm talking in a different way. We, we all do. We all have these different levels. So animals, I think, are very similar. You know, you can watch your dog, and it can be just so self-involved with a stick or a ball, and it's just pure joy and pure play and movement. And yet you can sit with that same dog in a, in a, in a different setting and connect with its deeper self, if you will. And, and, and get some wise answers and get a, a different reflective quality about that animal's life. Oh. Okay, we, we commonly view ourselves, I mean, we've agreed that animals have souls, at least you and I have, I don't know about the listening audience, but uh, we commonly think about ourselves as having um, certain, you know, challenges in our life, maybe mm-hmm. karmic consequences or however mm-hmm. you want to see it. Uh, they're spiritual in their nature, these challenges. They're things that we are here to overcome, uh, to deal with, to rectify, whatever terminology you're comfortable with. Do animals have the same kind of spiritual challenges uh, in their uh, car- incarnation? 
I totally believe they do. I've talked to enough animals to have that answered for myself. Yes. Now, are all animals aware of it? Not necessarily. Are all humans aware of it? Not necessarily. So um, my take is that, yes, we all have these challenges, and uh, whether you're a, a, a rabbit, a dog, a horse, a human, a uh, whale, um, yes, we all, have, we, all, we all are here for a reason. And um, as to whether we're aware of that or not, that's a different story. So uh, wild animals, you, you just mm-hmm. ran through the domesticated ones, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, coyotes uh, mm-hmm. that, that kill just to kill. Um, well, as opposed it, it, to what yeah. wolves, how wolves hunt. I mean, coyotes, you can see coyotes get into a herd of sheep and they'll take down 10, 15 uh, sheep and, and they won't feed on them. They just kill them and then move on to the next to kill as opposed to a wolf that uh, a pack of wolves will bring down a sheep and they'll parse it out. They'll feed on it. Um, there is some some spiritual path there for the coyote. Yeah, and I think this is what I'm talking about with shadow material. You know, I'm more comfortable seeing um, and not necessarily judging that coyote until I've walked in those coyote shoes, you know. <laughs> I mean, we don't, you don't, we don't, we, we, we are, humans are great projectors. We love to project and we love to make, you know, uh, snakes bad and dolphins wise, for example. I'm just using that as an example. But um, unless you've lived life as a coyote, I don't know that, that we're understanding it fully. I don't know what we're, you know, we're projecting. We're projecting our views. It's very easy to do that. It's very seductive. Uh, we do it all the time. I think well, part of... Go ahead. We tend, we tend as humans to inhibit passions. You know, if we have these instincts, these urges that, uh, you know, we could think of as arising out of our id side of uh, the id, ego, superego, that, that construct... We tend to want to inhibit those. That's a part of our, you know, socialization. And so we push things down, we deny them, and we do all kinds of sublimation or other mechanistic tactics to find ways to act out behaviors in socially acceptable ways. Do you believe that a coyote, perhaps, just is simply not... In, a, in an environment like ours where they suppress these initial drives. That's, that's where I'm going. <clears throat> I, I don't know. I am more comfortable looking at the whole situation um, in terms of an over... And, 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 you know, you're just giving it one little slice of the coyote's life there. So we're not sure. looking at how a coyote uh, lives with its family or things like that. We're not taking into account the larger... You know, myths that we look at with Coyote the Trickster. There's all kinds of aspects and facets to Coyote that we've yet to explore with this if we just look at that, that one little slice. So, like I said before, you know, I think we're multidimensional beings. And maybe Coyote gets into that killing thing and, and that's, and that's its focus for that slice of its life. Does that mean it doesn't have an interior life or spiritual path? I don't think so. I think that's just one slice. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I I do. I, I I of course I grabbed a coyote because they're the easy ones to uh you know to to take a part of their life out and and try to explain. I mean we mm-hmm. we anthropomorphize all of nature. That's a natural human characteristic. So we look out there and we see something like as you say, we we want to protect. We see something like them just killing for the heck of it. But there there are a number of other animal behaviors that we could have targeted. I guess 
One of the things that I, I think about where the human condition is and one of the things that separates us from other animals, and we'll talk about this more after our break, is our ability, what we call cortical inhibition. You know, the cortex, we have so much cortex. I, I once had a professor tell me, wherever you see something in great abundance in nature, pay very close attention. And when you look at the brain, what we have in great abundance is the cortex. And it seems that the perhaps the higher aspects of humanness are cortical inhibition uh, as opposed to something that we create, it's something we inhibit. And I was just curious if you saw any kind of a difference in that way. But I think you answered the question very well. So uh, we do have a break coming up. When we come back, we will discuss with you just exactly what it feels like to, to join the polar bears, uh, to, to actually have this dream where you are a polar bear. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at eldon at eldontaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. The changes I've seen in my life are truly a blessing. InnerTalk has given me the tools to repair deep-seated beliefs that constantly worked against me. I find myself happier and more successful since I've used the InnerTalk programs. I encourage you to discover the power of your beliefs by visiting www.innertalk.com and selecting your title for change. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now... Back to the show. Her bathing on the roof, her beauty and 
Welcome back. We've been speaking with Dawn Bauman Brunke about her experiences as an animal communicator and her new book, Dreaming with Polar Bears, Spirit Journeys with Animal Guides. In this half hour, we will take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback and a great place for that is on Facebook. So I invite you to join me there today. All right, Don, we just played Hallelujah by Katie Lang. Uh, tell us, why is this one important to you? And again, how does it inform us about who you are? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> love Leonard Cohen, so one of the great songwriters of our times. And Katie Lang, what can you say about the purity of that voice? This song particularly for me, it just opens a conduit to the heavens, kind of. I just, I, I, I just resonate with her voice so much and... And uh, to me, I just feel a huge um, support for this song, kind of an underlying feeling like everything's okay. That's why I love this song. One of my favorites. You know, let me ask you something in kind of, you know, in light of that. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, you're a young girl. You're going to church (laughs) on Sunday, and then the animals don't have souls. Were you, I mean... How did you react to that? I mean, did that did that take religion out of your life for a while, or I was outraged. I was really shocked. I couldn't believe my mom, who loves dogs, um, that she would believe that dogs didn't have souls. I don't want to obsess about this too much, but yeah, it really. I think it shifted me into seeing um, um, that religion is a paradigm. It's a belief system. Um, it's certainly valid, um, but for me, I just knew that one wasn't going to work. You know. Okay, yeah. so this song, which is a kind of, it's a spiritually it is, you know, it is. motivated it is. song, fills that place, perhaps. Makes yeah, well, you I say think everything okay. Everything's okay. We have a deep connection with all things and, and with the divine, and I think cool. it is all okay. Yeah. Cool. All right, enough of the psychoanalyzing nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I actually love read... that you asked about the songs. I mean, I just think that's such a wonderful aspect to your show. Oh, um, thank you. We like fun. it. We like it a lot. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it adds a lot of things to the show. Let me, you know, when you dreamed that you were a polar bear, mm-hmm. you actually became a polar bear, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. what was that like? What was it yeah. like to be a polar bear? There was one dream specifically, and I talk about it in the book, um, and it began very kind of fanciful, whimsical almost, where I'm, I'm at a, 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 a big lake, and, and polar bears are walking around as if they're humans. They're kind of human-polar bear hybrids, and they're wearing clothes, and, um, uh, and I'm with the bear that, I've, uh, that was often with me in my dreams, and I was kind of directed to this little booth where this uh, a polar bear teenage girl was had a, a bunch of costumes, a polar bear costumes, and wanted me to try one on. And in the dream, and this was not a lucid dream, by the way, it was a, a dream, dream. 
<laughs> and I uh, I kind of balked at it, like, no, that's so cheesy, you know. I, I don't want to try the costume. And they kept pressing me to do it. So I tried on the it was it was a uh, uh, a full body costume and then a head. And so when I pulled on the full body costume, I was all of a sudden very impressed how how real it felt. There were pads um, on on the feet on the feet and and, and the hands and and claws. And then they had a big bobblehead, and I thought, oh, no, again, I wanted to kind of reject it and not do this. But they pressed on in a good-natured polar bear sort of way. And when I put that head on, an amazing thing happened. I felt the suit uh, shrinking, almost like shrink-wrapping to my body, and I simultaneously felt my body bulking up and becoming much larger, much more muscular. I felt myself uh, moving down onto all fours. And I realized I was becoming a polar bear. It was an amazing thing within the dream. And in fact, for a moment, I might have been lucid at that point. Um, uh, it was it was it was really feeling and embodying that um, uh, the feeling, the experience of being a polar bear. And I remember uh, one of the bears was running, and I pushed off. You know how how dogs sometimes one dog will run and the other will just without thought run. It was yeah. that kind of mentality. I just pushed off and I was running and thinking, oh my gosh, this is so amazing to be a polar bear. And I could feel with my paws, and this is something the polar bears had told me, that they felt within the ground energetically. And indeed, I could feel about three to four inches down onto the ground. I could feel that connection with the earth and what that was like. And it was this marvelous dream where we jumped into the water and, and swam through the water. And I had the experience of what it's like to have all these to this kind of thick layer of blubber around you, of fat holding you up and supporting you and insulating you from the cold. And, um, and diving down, and actually in the dream we came up um, into, the, into the Arctic. So it was kind of a, a moving dream where we moved from Alaska to uh, further north into the Arctic. It was just this amazing dream. And I loved it when I woke up thinking, you know, that whole notion of um, the suit kind of condensing around or... or uh, uh, closing in on me and my body expanding to meet it. There's something there about that coming in and coming out and, and that, that interstice there of being where the power is. And for me, that really spoke to how, we, how I connect with animals, that kind of um, movement in and movement out simultaneously and, and that being a very uh, a potent power spot there of, of what shape-shifting is all about and what communicating with animals is all about. And to some degree, what lucid dreaming with another animal is all about as well. So it was an amazing experience. Okay, now I don't want to be insensitive. But sure. God, I have to ask you, how do you know that this, I mean, you're a writer. You, you, mm-hmm. You've got a, a great, I'm sure you have a great imagination. You, you have to in order to be a writer. How do you validate these experiences as being genuine and and not just well yeah i had a lucid dream but i Mm -hmm. well let me back up i remember my Mm -hmm. very first lucid dream long before anyone was talking about lucid dreams and i had a monster chasing me and my dog Mm -hmm. and and i became i I mean i woke uh, completely awake and and i was frightened i was just a boy uh maybe 10 or so um and, and and I wanted to go back to sleep because I was really tired. So what I did is I just, you know, I'm going to go back in there and I'm going to chase that thing if it comes mm-hmm. back in another, you know, how you can open your mm-hmm. eyes and close them again and they're still the same dream. Well, I did that. My dog and I chased this monster away. I mean, mm-hmm. we chased it, you know, through the familiar streets, etc. So 
how do you know? I mean, what what criteria, Don, do you use to know that it's not something you're imagining, something you're creating, but indeed it's something that's externally real as well? Yeah, that is a great question. And uh, to answer it, I want to go back to the question you asked me before and the, in the, in the story you gave of the woman with the dog and finding the stuffed animal and my right. story of, of the horse and how that was later validated by the woman. Um, when we're de- dealing with the dreams, how can we possibly know if this polar bear is, is having the same dream? Okay, if you're going to stay in conventional, rational, logical reality, the short answer is you can't. I mean, how can you do that? You cannot do that. You couldn't do so, it. That's right. You couldn't do it. No, there's, and and it would be crazy to try. So um, my answer has to do with I think experience and being authentic to myself and what resonates is real for me. I've had enough experiences with animal communication, kind of proving it to myself time and time and time again. I could tell you many many stories about things that happened and you know, and then the person validates or an animal validates later. Um, so I think I've already gone through a lot of skepticism in that way. And as I said in the beginning of the show, I am a skeptic. I think it is important um, not to float off into airy fairy land, but to ask ourselves some very real questions about this. In terms of my experiences with the dreams, um, all I can tell you is I've been, you know, writing down my dreams since fifth grade, and I have a, uh, I, I kind of have my own body of. Uh, information and experiences, and I know what authentically resonates me and what what doesn't. So all I can tell you is that for me, it was very real. For me, it had meaningful ramifications. You know, I think that's an important thing to ask ourselves, too. Is it meaningful? Does it teach us something, you know? Right. I I agree, totally. And, And I know that collective dreaming is possible. I used to teach a course on collective dreaming, and, you know, the final... The final episode, if you will, of the course I used to call an exam was everyone would have the same dream at a given point in time. We'd all agree that on that evening we would go to bed with a certain idea in mind and uh-huh. we would attempt to, you know, connect. Uh-huh. Not everybody connected, but uh-huh. oftentimes people, when we gathered the next week, would be able to tell each other about the dream and aspects of the dream. So you had, because of language, we had a verifiability that mm-hmm. I can see just simply wouldn't exist with a polar bear. But right. now, you indicated that you've also had these dreams with other animals. And did I understand mm-hmm. that through them, maybe you have had validation? Um, well, I was speaking more uh, in my answer about experiences with uh, animal communication, so events where animals would say one thing and then later on it would indeed come true. It was, and those were with my own animals. Um, but I have had experiences in dreams, not necessarily with the polar bears, although if I thought long enough I probably could give you an example of other animals who have said things to me um, that later actually came to pass as being true. So they were foreshadows guides, suggestions, uh, yeah, yeah, so I, th- I think it is it is possible to prove it in that way. Yeah, I th- that would be really interesting. You, you mm-hmm. ever, you know, decide to assemble that kind of documentation, the next time we talk, be sure you bring it to the show. Mm-hmm. When, when we talk about dreams, Don, you know, we always talk about dream symbols. If, if you mm-hmm. and I are having a dream, 
um, you know, the symbology in the dream um, doesn't need to take the form of an animal to represent an animal or the form True. of anything else. Do you, do you have symbols in, in your animal dreams? I mean, is there a characterization here where it's subject to interpretation based on symbols? Yes, and in fact, the whole first part of my book is about really learning the language of dreams, and symbols are something that fascinate me. Um, and I just got to tell you one thing because I just thought of something that um, the dream that I uh, that I told you about how about how things can show up in one world and then in another. So in that dream about the about becoming the polar bear, um, the bear I was with. Um, it had this little hat. It was really a funny little jaunty blue, almost like a Greek sailor hat in the dream. And I thought that was really funny. And when we, when we uh, came to the Arctic, we, we, we both went up onto this ice floe. And he shook. I shook as well. And that was another amazing experience, just feeling what that feels like to shake as an animal. Anyway, that blue hat went on the ground. And, and I remember in the dream thinking, well, that's strange that that hat went all the way from you know, one place down through the water and came up here. And the bear said to me, it's a memory marker. And I, I was trying to ask, like, well, what is that? But in the dream, things shifted. You know how dreams are. Sometimes they do right. shift. Anyway, about a week later, I was at the grocery store, and I was, oh, God, I remember this so well. I was picking out navel oranges, and I was standing there, and this old man was standing next to me. He was a real short, cute little man with white hair. And I looked over at him, and he was wearing the exact same hat. <laughs> and I just got giddy, and I said, "I love your hat," and I started laughing. And 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 he looked at me, and his face burst into one of those huge smiles that sometimes very stern people have, and then they they smile, and their whole face brightens up. And he started laughing too. And it was just this amazing, heartwarming experience of, wow, you know, there is this connection between our dreams and waking life. And if we are very observant and very open to the gifts that dreams show us, you know, we will see that. We will see those connections and be reminded of it. It was a lovely little gift I felt the dream gave me. Signals of validation, and they they are very important. There's no question about it. Okay, now, we've been saving, you know, for this last little bit, some of the more important information in your book. Uh, Tell us this. The polar bear is considered to be the guardian of the North Pole, evolutionary energy. I mean, flesh that out for us. What did you learn? What was their message? Well, their message, I think, as uh, as uh, guardians of the North, certainly they're the most powerful animal up at the North Pole. They speak a lot, and this is uh, talked about more in the book, about uh, their uh, connection with, um, as they call it, holding the Earth together which has to do with um, uh, an energetic connection that they have. It would actually take me kind of a while to, to explain it here, but I think they're, what, they're, what their main message is that I feel is about um, an invitation asking humans to reopen to this, that we were connected at one time on deeper levels, that we did all participate in universal language, and that we were um, allied with the polar bears in terms of conscious dreaming. And that is one thing. One of the things that polar bears teach. You can look at, you know, um, and, and native um, uh, and shamanic uh, views of the polar bear. And the polar bears are able to consciously dream, and sometimes even walk while consciously dreaming. Um, they share a huge, hugely deep meditative um, connection, and I think they offer that as a pathway for us 
into our dreams and as a means of connecting our dreams with waking life. Their main message is we're all in this together. Isn't it time you woke up? Was there any concern expressed about um, what mankind is doing to this planet when you were communicating? Yeah, Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, because, I mean, the whale, uh, there was a section, too, about the whale wars that happened and how uh, polar bears were were deeply hurt by humans who had been once their their allies, their friends, um, their teachers, as well as their students, and um, how humans kind of went away from that and, and really did some terrible things to polar bears as well as whales. Um, but um, in terms of being endangered, because that's a, you know, a concern right now, are the polar bears endangered? Uh, their answer was kind of to laugh at that and to say, you know, the species that's most endangered right now are human beings. You're the ones who are the most disconnected from the planet and the most insistent that um, your reality is the only reality and the right reality. And that's a very dangerous place to be. Amen. Amen. Many mystics inform us, Don, that, you know, we're all living a dream. Uh, I have a good friend that's a neurosurgeon that says it is all a dream. Uh, And, you know, in your book, you tell us that polar bears do not distinguish life from dreams. It's one living state. There's a continuity between them. Have you learned to look on life the same way, Don? And if so, has it changed your life at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the polar bears, uh, one of the phrases they use was fluid dreaming. So we're, we're moving, uh, they move in that, in that interconnected space between dreams and waking life. Has it changed my life? Most certainly. Do I see that all the time? No, I wish I could say yes. I don't see that all the time. Sometimes I get into my very human um, aspects. But um, I think more and more I go into that space of viewing life as a dream and viewing dreams as real and playing with that interaction, you know, really walking that line between dreams and waking life. Um, I think it's very helpful to look at events in our, in our waking world um, in a symbolic way, as if they are a dream, because it opens us up to see things in a much different way and, and simultaneously to look at our dreams and to consider the insights, the teachings they have for us in very practical ways in our waking life. So my, my, uh, the way this has changed me is really to, uh, to open up that bridge between waking and dreaming lives and to, uh, um, to spend more time there <laughs> in the in-between. Right. Now, I, I have to ask this. It's a, I'm not sure that you can answer it. It's rather philosophical, I suppose. But if, if we can, as you would have me do, say, with my dream where Cowboy is concerned, if mm-hmm. we can enter a dream and change the dream, mm-hmm. if we can go back and call upon an old dream, actually reintroduce it and start that stream going again and then change its outcome, are we able to do that in our physical world as well if we mm-hmm. have this state you're talking about? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Well, so I'm not sure if you mean in physical life go back in time or if you mean um, shift something that has happened. Yeah, um, that's exactly what I mean. Which, going back in time? No, no, shift oh, something, something that's that happened. Shift well, something yes, that's happened. Yes, I definitely do think that's true. And, I mean, you, you alluded to this in your, which made me think, like, yeah, of course you can do that with your horse because you did it with your monster. You went back into your dream and you chased the monster. It's the same thing, I think, with going back into our dreams and facing our shadow material. 
that's but that's, stuff. that's our dream. Can we do that in our waking life, Don? Yeah, don't we? I mean, I don't know. I guess that's why some people find me hard to deal with because I'm always interested <laughs> in what is the problem here. Why am I why am I feeling this way? Why am I hooked up on that? I mean, most of my friends know that I don't like to have secrets on, you know, I don't like to have what I call psychic knots between them. I don't like to um have this this big block of something that I'm ignoring. I would way rather be honest and open about it because that's that's when the energy flows. You know, as soon as you start hiding things or breaking down or um kind of imploding in on yourself because of fear of this that or the other, you're not living an authentic life. So I'm forgetting totally. everything on I, the table, you know? <laughs> I can't imagine anybody finds you difficult to be around. Don, we have about 45 seconds, and in that time, I want you to tell everyone how they can learn more about you, get your books, uh, maybe even contact you, reach out to you, uh, both sure. to learn uh, how to animal communicate or to have you be a communicator for them. Please tell sure. us. Everything is available at my website, www.animalvoices.net. Um, you can contact me by email that way. You can purchase books. You can learn about classes or about consultations. So that is the very best way, animalvoices.net. And I tell you, the book is Dreaming with Polar Bear, Spirit Journeys with Animal Guides. It is a great read, um, and, and it... Uh, it is one of these books that when you're through reading it, it will change the way you see many things in life. All right. Thank you for your work and your willingness to share it with us, Don. Uh, we've come to the end of another hour, uh, another episode, I guess, of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let us know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.